This evening's scripture is 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are the are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening and welcome. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us tonight. We're going to continue worshiping by uh, looking into God's word and seeing what the Lord would have for us today. We're going through this series through the book of First Peter this semester. Uh, before we get to that, I uh, want to uh, just welcome you, but also want to tell you about a couple things that are coming up. Uh, in two weeks, we are having our next meal. We have a monthly meal, which gives us the opportunity to serve people in our community by offering them a free meal, but it also gives us an opportunity to break bread together, spend more time uh, with one another, welcome new people into the church. And so we are going to do that in two weeks. And traditionally in November, we have a Thanksgiving meal. And so the way that's going to work is on November 13th, after the service, we are going to provide the main course, and then we are going to do a potluck for the rest. So you should have seen that information in the weekly email. You'll get that information again this week the week after, so you'll know whether to bring a dessert or side, but worst case scenario, everyone brings dessert and everyone's happy. So it'll be great. Everyone's going to bring something. We'll provide the main course. Uh, That's an opportunity for us to give thanks and to be so thankful to the Lord for the work that he is doing in our lives, uh, to for the work he's doing among us, for the work he's doing in our world. It's an opportunity for you to have fellowship with others. If maybe celebrating with others at Thanksgiving is not a reality for you, or if you're not able to be with loved ones, we want to be your church family and we want to have a meal together. So that's what we will do in a couple of weeks. Tonight we are doing uh, what we traditionally do on a fifth Sunday, which is kind of a stripped down service when it comes to technology. Um, hence the handouts for the worship lyrics and the unplugged music. But another thing we're trying here tonight is no slides for the sermon as well. So I want to encourage you to have your Bibles out. Um, we are going to do a Bible study tonight. Uh, we always study the Bible. We preach through the Bible. But in particular tonight, we are going to be studying what God's word is saying and the context of the original audience that First Peter was writing to. So I encourage you to have a Bible out, whether a paper copy or electronic. Um, that's really going to be our outline for the night. And if you are the kind of person that takes notes, I will have four things that we should keep in mind as a church based on the context that we're going over tonight. So just want to kind of tell you where we are headed. Before we jump into tonight's scripture, it's important that we look at a quick review of the book of First Peter, because there's a theme that runs throughout it that if we miss that theme, we miss the author's intent. 
And when we speak of author's intent, we're thinking of many different authors, aren't we, when it comes to the Bible? We are speaking first and foremost of God and his intent for writing the words of scripture. Then the next author is men as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. There are human authors, but God's word tells us that they are carried along by the Spirit of God. And so there is an intent of authorship and what the author, both God and human author, is trying to get across to us. And there is a theme that goes throughout First Peter. And if we miss that theme, we miss the author's intent. If we look back at First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we see from the very beginning what Peter is writing about in this book. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we read that we are born again, those who are in Christ, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are born again. We now have spiritual life. It's what Jesus talks about. It's what Peter is writing about here. When we are in Christ, we have now spiritual life. We're being born again. We have a living hope, not a dead hope, not a hope like the world has, but it's a living hope and it's living because it's right here, right now. Our hope is not just in the future, in eternity's future, but right here, right now. Because of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and because of the Holy Spirit that he sent to be in the church, we can have a living hope right here and right now. So in 1 Peter, we're taking a look at what a living hope looks like. What a living hope looks like. And so what Peter has done so far is chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 12, he has showed us, shown us this is what a living hope is. This is why we have a living hope. This is the nuts and bolts of the gospel. And then now we are in a section from 2.13 on where he is showing us now this is what a living hope looks like when it's lived out. So that's what our author's intent is. This week and next, we will look at this passage that Andrew read for us, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and we will look at what a living hope looks like in marriage. Before I pray and before we jump into this, if you are not married, I want to say a few things before you tune me out for the next two weeks. A few things for you if you are not married. First, some of you are completely disenchanted with the idea of marriage. It's important that you see what the Bible has to say about what a living hope looks like in marriage, if that is the case. Some of you are disenchanted with marriage because our world's view of marriage is desperately broken. It has either been redefined, it has been made about self and self-love and self-gratification, or it has been all about me. It has been very me-centered or it has just been thrown out altogether as if it is not necessary at all. Our world has a broken idea of marriage. Well, at least we have the church to look to, right? Oh, the church's record on marriage isn't so great always either. So even if we grew up in the church or if we grew up in a Christian home, we don't always have a biblical view or a biblical example of marriage. Another thing is the verses we're about to discuss have been misused and we need to do some good contextual work to know what's going on in this passage. 
Another application for us here at Grace Downtown is that even if you are not married, you are in situations here at Grace Downtown where you are leading others who are married. So this is something we need to talk about. Also, there are some general principles in this text that are applicable for, for all of us as we look to be a church that has a living hope. So this week, how does this passage describe a living hope for marriage, for the church in the first century? That's what we're going to try to tackle tonight. And next week, we're going to tackle how does this passage describe a living hope for us today? So today is largely going to be about the first century, the context in which this passage was written, the author's intent to the original audience. And then we're going to take a look at the spirit's intent for us as a church here today, next week. Would you pray with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, your word is so good. Your design is so beautiful. And Jesus, ultimately what you have done for us is so incredible. It's good news. It's hope. It's life, it's joy, it's peace, it's truth. And God, we believe it's good news for us and others, and so we want to know the depths of the living hope that we have in Jesus. Father, I pray for each one listening here tonight, whether they are married or not, whether their parents are married or not, whether they have grown up in a religious home, an irreligious home, or anything in between, God, I pray that you would show us what your design is. Show us what a living hope looks like. And ultimately, Jesus, show us the power of the gospel. Your name, Jesus, is powerful. The work that you have done is powerful. God, according to 1 Peter, we can have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, and we can rejoice right here, right now. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, we can rejoice right here, right now. God, I pray that we would be a people that rejoices, that hopes in God, that fears God, that has a living hope. Father, would you do that through your word and your spirit and your people tonight? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So please open with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 if you have not already. We're going to start with the first couple of verses here. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses one through two. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So let's walk through this one step at a time. First, the first word we read is likewise. Peter is comparing something that has come previously because he tells us Likewise. So before we get into what he actually says, we need to know what he means by likewise. Well, we have two clues in the passage that has come right before us. Okay. Right before this, we have read two things that the likewise is likely pointing back to. We read a couple of things about conduct and an example. There's a conduct and an example. Look with me at uh, verses 21 through 25 of first Peter chapter two. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. So the passage that has come right before this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in 
return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise. Okay. The likewise here is pointing back to this example of Christ. And this example of Christ is wedged right in between Two other examples of what it looks like to have a living hope. We spent whole sermons on them. One of them is how we are subject to the governing authorities that God has put uh, in place and that we are under in our governing authorities. Those are an authority over us. We are subject to them. And then last week, Pastor Josh walked us through what it looks like. The, the text here says bondservant. Really, it's talking about as workers, Even if you're in an unjust situation, we entrust ourselves to God. And then the example of how to do this right is Jesus. Jesus, who was put in unjust situations, but as we talked about in the passage on government and submitting to governing authorities, Jesus, though put in an unjust situation, neither did and said the things man wanted him to do, yet he did not defend himself when treated unjustly. Here we are seeing an example of Jesus laying down his life and sacrificing himself for another. The likewise is referring to that. Likewise, like Jesus who deserved to be worshiped, who deserved to be God, came and laid down his life for others instead. So likewise is pointing back to that. When Christ was treated unjustly, what did he do? That's what it's referring to. This next um, phrase, wives be subject. This term, be subject, what is he telling them to do? That word be subject, we've seen it now, this is the third time in 1 Peter, and it means place yourself under. Place yourself under. That's what it means. Place yourself under. So three reasons or three things that we need to take a look at with this word subject. First, the teaching about submission in the first century church was especially relevant to a first century married woman who had begun to follow Christ. She would have questions in her mind like, should I change my behavior now that I'm a believer? What should my posture be towards my husband, who may or may not be following Jesus? Should I assume a superior position to my husband now that I'm a follower of Jesus? And as we're about to read here, some of the husbands didn't know Christ or were not obeying Christ. And the woman was left with the question, I'm following Jesus now. Now am I superior to my husband? Do I, how do I act in the home? Whether I've come from a Jewish background, a Gentile background, a Greco-Roman background. Remember, the audience is very diverse that 1 Peter is writing to. They're exiles. They are away from their foreign land, so they come from an eclectic background. Second, in the culture of the ancient world, it was almost unthinkable for a wife to adopt a different religion than her husband. Then, as we've looked at in First Peter, the gospel comes, Pentecost happens, people hear the gospel in their native tongue, and they go back and they share it wherever they came from, and now it is very likely that a woman is following Jesus and her husband is not. It's very different 
for women in the first century. Christian women who came to Jesus before their husbands needed instructions on how to live with a living hope. The other thing that we need to point out here that we'll go back to is that the wife is being told here to be place herself under her husband, not be subjugated by her husband. We'll go back to this in a little bit. Next, we read that some are disobedient. This is referring to a couple of different things. It's saying that some of these women are married to men who either don't know Jesus or who claim Jesus but are not obedient to him. Maybe they don't know the ways of Jesus or maybe they're just living in open rebellion to Jesus. And that's the situation that these women are in. But either way, these women are in a situation where they are suffering where they are potentially being treated unjustly, where they are worried and concerned, and they have all these questions and more that we've pointed out here today. So in this difficult situation, what are they supposed to do? He tells them that they must be subject to their husbands. So even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He's telling them, show them you have a living hope, not with your words, but with your actions. It's with your good conduct. It's with how you act. It's not just with your words that you are trying to communicate what a living hope is to your husband, particularly if you're in an unjust situation. He is telling them this is what it looks like to actively trust God with a living hope, no matter what situation you are in as a woman. He says you ha- he's reminding them they have a living hope. He's telling them that the gospel in their life, the living hope that they have, the rejoicing that they can do right here, right now, has the ability to change their husband, their marriage, and not only that, the society that they're living in. Let's continue on in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. Verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There's a contrast here. Peter's wedging what what a woman should do, what she shouldn't do, and then what she should do. That's what he just lays out for us in verses 2, 3, and 4. And what he is talking about here is influence. How will you influence your husband, particularly with a living hope, if he doesn't know Jesus? How will you influence? And he's telling these women, you're going to influence them not by the things that you say, and you're not going to influence them by the way that you look, appealing to your husband in that way. You're going to do so through your conduct that comes from a hidden posture of your heart. This hidden posture of your heart goes back to what Peter was talking about in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's telling us what a living hope looks like, and it rejoices right here, right now. And it's an inward heart that's hoping in God, which he uses that language coming up in verse 5. He's saying there's something inward going on in your heart in light of the gospel that you need to let well up and cause you to live a certain way in your home. You should be driven by a fear of God, a hope in the Lord, and doing what is pleasing 
to him. It's what he's passing on to them. He uses this phrase, the hidden person of the heart. And an imperishable beauty, a beauty that can't be taken away. That's what they are to use to influence their husband. We'll go back to this as we talk a little bit more about context here in a bit. But let's continue through the passage. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and you do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's start with that last phrase. If you do not fear anything that is frightening. He's saying Sarah and the women of old were in frightening situations, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. And he's saying some of you are in a frightening situation. So how should you act? What should you do in this frightening situation? We need to ask the question, why are they in a frightening situation? Well, first is one thing we've already talked about. They could very likely be in a situation where they started following Jesus before their husbands. And it's a very uncultural thing. It goes against the culture to have a different religion than your husband. And now she's asking all of these questions that we're talking about. So that's the first frightening situation. But she's also in a frightening situation by being a woman in the first century. The situation in her household may be difficult, but the situation in the marketplace or out on the street or at the temple is very different for her. In the first century context, women had absolutely no rights, privileges, or power in society. Even the most very wealthy women in the Greco-Roman culture had no rights to their children. If their husband divorced them or left them, they had the rights to the children. And the woman was left with no inheritance rights, no rights to her children, no social capital, no education, no upward mobility. The world was a frightening place for women in the first century. That's not the only century throughout history that the world has been a frightening place to be a woman. We see examples from the Old Testament. We see examples of men like Hosea and Boaz and then Joseph with Mary, the parents of Jesus, where women are in dangerous, even their life being in danger. And these men take them in and provide for them and give them shelter and give them physical help and safety. Here, one of the things that Peter is saying is you need to adorn yourself with trust and hope in God, and you need to be subject, make yourself subject, put yourself under your husband to be safe. And when you're in a threatening situation, your hope should ultimately not be in your husband, but in your God, which is what he is pointing out to us with the example of Sarah and Abraham. Here he is holding up Sarah and Abraham for us, not for an example of a perfect marriage. If you've read the story of Sarah and Abraham, you know they should not be writing any books on marriage. 
they had some problems in their marriage. They had sin, they had lying, they had deceit. There was the whole, hey, pretend you're my brother and I'll pretend you're my sister thing. It's messed up. They had a messed up marriage. They sinned against one another. They sinned against God. You can come back in January to hear all about it because we're going to go through the Old Testament. We're going to talk about Abraham and Sarah's marriage. It's wild. Peter is not saying have a marriage like Abraham and Sarah, meaning do everything that they did. But he is telling us a couple of things. Abraham was told to go to a land and a place that I will show you. God said, I'll show you where you're going, but just go. He tells them at a very old age, past the age of being able to have offspring, that the promised offspring would come through them continually. God is asking Abraham, trust me, I have a plan for your life. And he sends Abraham to a place that he will show him, give him offspring. He will bring about miraculously. And he keeps telling Abraham, hope and trust in me. And Sarah had to do the same. The story of Abraham and Sarah is two people, though broken and sinful, hoped in and trusted in God. In fact, Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 3 says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he was, has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Peter is telling these women in this situation, trust in God. Put your hope in God. Believe in God and what he is doing. Verse 7. Likewise. Okay, we have another likewise. So husbands are being told to do something similar to what their wives and to what Household slaves and to what us under government, they're being told to do something similar. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Once again, likewise, pointing back to the example of Christ, pointing back to the example of lowering oneself, Placing yourself subject to someone else. Here he's telling the husbands to place themselves under God's authority. The God is their authority. He tells them also to live with them in an understanding way. This Greek word means with the knowledge of. With the knowledge of. Scholars debate about what this knowledge of is. Is What does the man have a knowledge of? Is it, does he have a knowledge of God? Or does he have a knowledge of his wife? There's some debate about this. Because in the context, it seems what it's being said is that he uh, is more understanding his wife. And in fact, the Greek word here is used in other connotations in the New Testament for knowing your spouse intimately, physically. But also, as we read this, we're left to wonder who is he trying to understand and what knowledge is he under as he is getting this instruction from first Peter. I think there's a clue in the next part and it's kind of where I fall on the passage. I think likewise 
husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. I believe what Peter is telling us here when he says to live with your wives in an understanding way is that we need to understand and put ourselves under the knowledge of God and of God's plan for our wife and for us. I think he is telling husbands, when you consider how you are going to treat your wife, remember, have a knowledge of God, have a knowledge of her that says she is your co-heir in Christ. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about that when you think about how you are going to treat her and how you are going to love her and how you are going to make yourself subject to God and then lay down your life for her as Christ loves his church. Look ahead with me. We're going to cover this verse next week, but I'm going to skip over it or in two weeks, but I'm going to skip over it very quickly then because I think it fits the context of what we're talking about here better. Verse 8 is the conclusion of these orders that are given to us about government, household slaves, husbands and wives. Then look with me at verse 8. Finally, all of you. So who is he talking to? Husbands, wives, house slaves, everyone who's under government. So everyone, right? He's talking to everyone. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, that's familial language, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I think when Peter, in verse 7, tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, he's telling them to do verse 8. She's a co-heir. Have unity of mind. Have sympathy. Have brotherly love towards her as a co-heir in Christ. Have a tender heart. Have a humble mind. Of course, these instructions are being given to everyone that Peter has just been talking about. But let's make sure we focus on that it's to husbands as well. That's what he means by living with your wife in an understanding way. Then he says, do this so that your prayers won't be hindered. Peter here is telling us that our relationship with God is impacted by our marriage and our marriage is impacted by our relationship with God. Your relationship with God and your marriage and every other role you have in life, whether it's a student, a boss, an employee, whatever it is, they are not these segmented parts of your life. They are all together. They're connected Later in 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to see Peter quote James and say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is saying that if we have pride in our marriage, if we don't treat our wives the way Christ would ask us to, then our very prayers will be hindered. We can say the prayers, but they're going to hit the ceiling above us because we are not laying down our life. For our wives. That's what he's getting at. Lastly, we need to consider this phrase, the weaker vessel, as the weaker vessel, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. By process of elimination, we're going to figure out what Peter is saying when he says weaker vessel. First, is he saying that the woman is weaker spiritually? According to scripture, no. 
Because the scripture from beginning to end paints a picture of men and women following the Lord, hearing from the Lord. Paul even gives instructions of when the women in the church prophesy. I don't know what that means, but apparently women are not weak spiritually. The Old Testament says that men and women, brothers and sisters, will dream dreams. They will see miraculous things take place. This is clearly not talking about spiritual weakness. Otherwise, Peter doesn't believe the rest of the Bible. So I think that's out. Next, is the woman weaker intellectually? Well, it seems in Proverbs 31, the woman that is being held up as the example of a godly woman is considering a field, taking money she has saved herself that she made somehow, and she is using that to go and buy that field. Apparently, they are not weaker intellectually. Are they weaker emotionally? In the Greco-Roman and first century, they were considered weak emotionally. Ochtmeyer, who wrote really the seminal commentary on 1 Peter that everyone refers back to, says that in the Greco-Roman world, women were seen as inferior, untrustworthy, ruled by emotions, and given to poor judgment. However, Peter here is describing a woman who even if in an unjust situation with an authoritarian guy that doesn't love Jesus, that doesn't give a rip about following Jesus, that even in that situation, by the hidden, imperishable relationship that she has with God, she is influencing her husband with a gentle and quiet spirit. This woman is strong emotionally, actually. Peter is saying, by the grace of God and through the power of God, through emotional strength, you are influencing your husband for the sake of the gospel. So we can rule out that they are weak emotionally. By process of elimination, we can see that this passage means that she is the weaker vessel in two obvious ways. First, physically. Physically weak. Again, Not only was the first century world an unsafe place for women, the world today is an unsafe place for women. I have never been scared for my life on a bus. I've had a very drunk college student try to break into my house. He tried to push the door open against me, and I knew that my Louisville slugger was close enough he was not coming in our house. I was not afraid. In fact, when I saw him on the bus a week later, I'm like, I could take that guy. I have felt like I can handle myself physically. I've been six foot three since 10th grade. I'm like, I'll probably be okay in any situation. I really honestly don't think I've ever feared for my life as far as like having to physically defend myself. It's not so for a woman. To this very day, in our very civilized world, it is an unsafe place for women physically. We were at the homecoming parade Friday night, and um, towards the end, people were trying to crowd in and kind of get a good view of things. And uh, my wife was sitting next, standing next to our friend Laura, and this guy came up and was trying to get video, and he was like hanging over them like this, with them under him, trying to get video. Like... A man would never do that to me. It is an unsafe place for women physically. So Peter here is referring to physical 
weakness. And there's a second kind of weakness that he's referring to, especially in the first century. And this is the hardest thing for us to wrap our brain around in this whole passage. Because it's not true of the modern day, largely in America. The first century woman was also weak socially. She had no power. No rights, no voting, no means, no upward mobility, no right to her kids, property, inheritance. The readers of First Peter, these women were in a situation where they had no hope outside of Jesus and being married to a guy that would hopefully, hopefully provide for them. So when Peter says to honor the woman as the weaker vessel, he is describing this situation that women are in. I have not been looking at the clock at all. So we are going, thank you, Rachel. Thank you. If you could just shout out every three or four minutes, what time? I'm kidding. Okay. So we are going to talk about some modern application Not for this entire passage. We're going to save that for next week because we're going to take a look at what does a living hope look like in marriage next week today? What does a gospel marriage look like that is obedient to this passage and living out a living hope in the modern time we find ourselves in? But there are four application points that I want to point out from what we have talked about here tonight. Number one, there is no place for abuse or subjugating women of any kind in the marriage, in the church, or in society. There is no place for abuse, subjugation of women in the home, in the church, and in society. As a church, we want to make this abundantly clear and not just something we teach on once in a while. So there is a couple of things that the elders uh, with lots of input have worked on over the last couple of years. One of them is we have a policy and a matrix that we put into the hands of our elders, into the hands of our counselors, and into the hands of our community group leaders to try and diagnose when abuse is taking place in the home, in the workplace, in the church, in someone's life. And it covers multiple different kinds of abuse, spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, intellectual abuse, uh, physical, sexual. It covers all the different areas. And that is to help us identify when is there an abusive relationship going on in the church. So that is something that you can actually view online on the church's website. If you go to graceb3.org backslash papers, It's one of the papers that we have available that you can take a look at to see how we are looking to protect people from abusive situations. Also, our counseling ministry has something called a PDI. Basically, it's our intake form for biblical counseling. We have a special intake form that is up right now as of this sermon and next week's sermon, where it is a short form PDI, where if a woman is in danger, she can fill that out in a quick manner if need be. And um, we will be in contact with her right away. We have people available right away this week to meet with anyone that is in an oppressive or abusive situation to help them figure out what is the next step towards physical safety for them. These are things that we feel like we need to provide because 
abuse is not just something that has taken place in the world. It's something that has taken place in churches and in Christian homes. And it is not of the gospel. And it is something that we want to advocate for those that cannot advocate for themselves. And we also want to say very plainly that if you as a man or as a husband are consistently telling your wife that she needs to submit to you, if you see her as weaker in ways that the Bible does not, if you try to intimidate your wife or other women with violence, anger, or loudness, you are not fearing God and you are not obeying scripture. You are not living with her in an understanding way, nor treating her as a co Air. This passage and others have been used for abusive, selfish purposes. And that is not what scripture is telling us to do. The Bible never tells a man to subjugate his wife towards submission. It is something she does as a loving response because her hope is in God. However, it also says that a husband displays the love of Christ to his wife through sacrificial service. And as husbands, if our actions don't point our wives to how much Christ loves her and we love her, then we are not obeying scripture. The church of Jesus Christ should be the safest place in the world for women. A Christian household should be the safest place on the planet for a woman or a a girl, but it has not always been so. And we need to get in line with what scripture is telling us to be as the church and as households. Second, we need a gospel view of marriage. We need to make sure that our marriage is being defined by not what we see in the world and not what we see in legalistic religion, but in the gospel and authentically in God's word. This passage offends everyone because it leaves no one off the hook. It does not tickle the ear of those that would say that subjugating women is what the Bible says. It does not tickle the ear of our modern sensibilities. And it lifts up for us the example of Christ as the example. And when that is done, we all fall short. We need a gospel view of marriage, whether married or not, we need this picture to be clear. We need this picture to be clear for our witness. The outside world is watching, especially as marriage, lifelong marriage between a man and woman that love one another becomes more peculiar. The outside world is watching and we have an opportunity to show them what the gospel looks like. We also need to live by a biblical definition of marriage. For ever, the church has fought for and um, thought of when we talk about a biblical definition of marriage as being between one man and one woman. And we concur that that is what the Bible teaches. However, when we say a biblical definition of marriage, we need to expand our view to say that it is a man and woman submitted to God and humbly laying down their lives for one another. That's the biblical definition of marriage. We can't stop at man, woman, married, good to go. It's not what the Bible is describing with Christian marriage. We also need to be a church that serves women well. Number three, serving women 
in the church. We need to make sure that we are equipping, encouraging, and facilitating women using their God-given gifts in the church. It's what the Bible describes. It's what the church of God should look like. We do believe here at Grace Community Church that the office of elder is open to men only. That's our interpretation of scripture. But you know the biggest reason that I believe that? It's not any one passage. Because frankly, it's a little confusing. The reason that I believe that male men should be leading the church is because... We are called to lay down our lives for our wives, for the women in the church, for the women in the community. And at the end of the day, I can't sit by and watch someone else do that when I feel like it's what God has called me to. So as the elders of Grace Downtown, we say to you, and there's a whole passage, Peter's going to talk to us in a few weeks. So if you're feeling picked on, he's going to pick on pastors in a few weeks. And what he tells us is that our primary responsibility is not just teaching, is not just running the church. It's not calling all the shots that our primary responsibility is laying down our lives for the sheep. The word for pastor or elder or shepherd in the New Testament is a verb. A pastor is not an office, it's an action. And God has called the men of the church to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. That's why I believe that men are called to be elders. We need to serve women in the church. We need to make sure that the full picture that Ephesians paints of a church where every part is doing its part takes place here at Grace Downtown where men and women are serving together to the glory of God. Men also have a responsibility to serve our sisters even if we are not married to them. There's an interesting thing in this passage that needs to be pointed out. And even the most conservative commentaries uh, and commentators point this out, that in verse one of chapter three, where it says, wives be subject to your husbands. um, And in verse seven, where it says, likewise, husbands lay down your life for your wife. It actually says the woman. It doesn't say wife. We've translated it wife, but it means the woman. And the implication is the woman in your household. There's a couple of applications of that. One, it means you're not just responsible for your wife, but the other women in your household, which in the first century, that could mean a lot of different people, as we learned last week, not just your wife. In a more modern day application, that could mean extended family. It definitely means daughters. But I think there's a broader application to laying down our lives for our sisters in the church caring for, laying down our lives for, serving the women in the church. That's what God has called us to. Lastly, we need to remember the power of the gospel for marriage. In the world and in the church, there is so much brokenness when it comes to marriage, as we talked about earlier. Here, Peter is painting a picture for us of what a living hope looks like in marriage and for marriage. It's a picture of a woman who had no power to do much of anything in culture, changing her life, 
her husband's life, and the whole household's life, and the community's life through the power of the gospel. That's what we're learning here today. We're supposed to look at this passage and see that a woman with no authority in culture, no privilege in culture, no upward mobility in culture, by following Jesus and by having a living hope and rejoicing in what Jesus has done for her, she can change the life even of an unjust Gentile husband. This is the power of the gospel. That's the transition to next week when we look at the power of the gospel for marriage today. We need answers to what marriage is supposed to look like. We need answers to what the church of God is supposed to look like, what male-female relationships are supposed to look like, and the gospel has the answer for us. And the answer is that the gospel is powerful and can redeem any and all relationships and situations. And that's what we'll take a look at next week. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for your blood spilled on our behalf. May we live in light of that. May we remember our living hope today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.